Welcome to Grad Chats with Dr. B. I'm your host, Dr. B, and today I'm chatting with some of our graduate faculty about writing at the graduate level. So let's meet our first guest, Dr. Lewis Nadelson. Dr. Nadelson is the chair of the Department of Leadership Studies here at UCA. Thank you, Dr. Nadelson, for joining me in this episode of Grad Chats with Dr. B. Uh, excellent. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, let's jump right into our topic of writing, particularly at the graduate level. Dr. Nadelson, for our listeners, those of you that don't know, in addition to his role as chair of the department, he also works with a number of doctoral students as they are writing their dissertations. So Dr. Nadelson, as you reflect on this work, what would you say is one of the most common issues you end up helping your students with when it comes to their writing? And if you can't narrow it down to one, feel free to share two or three. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, that's kind of tough to narrow it down. If it was just one, my job would be uh, significantly easier (laughs) ways there. It's just, you know, that that kind of academic writing really takes a a much different approach than many people are used to. It's not more, it's not necessarily a natural way of thinking and Mm -hmm. a natural way of writing. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I, I tell my students when they're doing their writing, particularly the reviews of literature, is what's the evidence for this? Is there evidence for this statement? And so that they're thinking about that, because one of the challenges that I've seen is referencing and citing evidence for statements is, mm-hmm. is a, a challenge because they haven't had a whole lot of experience with that in terms of using that to support their their positions or ideas mm-hmm. or, or and so forth with that and what will do, they'll tend to do instead is use direct quotes mm-hmm. so i i had one lit review that i looked at of a student and the student had about 30 pages of lit review and there were 75 quotes wow <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's yeah. like three or four on a page. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whenever the evidence was needed, they took the, the student took the quote from the author, researcher, whoever it was, and put it in there as evidence. And so we did some tandem writing. And I tend to do a lot of tandem writing with my students. And what tandem writing is, is that we will write together. And mm-hmm. so they'll write a sentence and I'll say, what are you trying to say here? What what what's the importance of what you're writing about here and how are you going to support that statement? Mm -hmm. And when do you need support and when don't you need support is another situation that is a little bit challenging for students. And I'd say sometimes that's a challenging for more seasoned authors as well. Sure. Well, you know, it's really odd because like you think if you have a PhD, people ought to believe what you say. (laughs) But they actually become, they begin to question everything that you say. And so any kind of statement, you need a reference that like backs up that claim. So it's interesting how that plays out. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so, and, and all you have to do is go participate in the whole peer review process. And then you'll, mm-hmm. you'll be humbled that that PhD doesn't mean a whole lot sometimes. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> there's other people who are able to pick your work apart and, and make you feel that uh, you, you don't know as much as you'd like to think you do. That's so right. and that's part of the writing process. You know, I, that, that's one of the other parts of this is that when I get work from students and I'll go in and I'll, I'll usually line it at about a page. And mm-hmm. then after that, I'll start making comments and just providing comments, but I'll line it at about a page uh, to model some of that. But 
you know, they get back that page and, you know, and I track changes and what they see is a bloodbath on there. And it looks like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, you know, not very smart and I, I can't write and so forth. And it's like, no, you, you gave me your first draft. I don't think that you really did a whole lot of proofreading with this and really let it sit and then come back and read it and mm-hmm. so forth and edit it yourself. And if I did that, that's the way my papers would look too. Mm-hmm. You have to let it sit for a while and then go back and look at it and really concentrate on when you're revising and so forth with that. I think that the other thing is paying attention to some more current practices. You know, one of the things that, you know, passive sentences was one thing that, you know, some people might get really hung up on. Sometimes a passive sentence makes sense and other times it doesn't. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it depends what you're writing. I really advocate for first person active voice. It's more natural. Mm -hmm. It's easier to read and easier to write. And so instead of saying the researcher did this, it's we did this or I did Mm -hmm. this. And uh, it shows ownership and it's clarity in writing. And so some of these other mechanical things are are really important to pay attention to too. Yeah. And some of that's probably dictated by discipline as well. So, you know, if you are a graduate student and you're wondering, is it okay if I write in first person, you know, don't take our word in this podcast, talk to your chair, your faculty advisor, um, read some of the literature in your discipline to look for those trends and, and so forth. One of the things that Dr. Nadelson that I think about is, and it comes out of conversations with graduate students where like at the undergraduate level, they wrote papers, they made A's on their papers. And everything was fine and dandy. And then they got into graduate school and they're still writing the same way. So their writing hasn't changed. But now they're getting papers, like you said, that have a lot of the track changes or recommended suggestions or a bloodbath is the phrase that you use. And so I'm wondering if you could articulate for us, like, how is writing at the graduate level different from writing at the undergraduate level? Yeah, that's a that's a, a really good, really good question. You know, I think that... One of the biggest differences is at the undergraduate level, frequently what we're looking for is just being able to write in general mm-hmm. and not necessarily forming an argument and then, you know, kind of moving through that process of either picking an argument apart or building an argument for a position using evidence. And I think that frequently in undergraduate, it's more we want to know what you think and what what your thoughts are and how mm-hmm. do you feel about this, where when you start getting to the graduate level, it's I want to know what your position is on this and I want to know what support there is for that position. Mm-hmm. And so because opinions are very different when you hit graduate school and a graduate okay. level. You know, suddenly those are op-eds, you know, those opinion editorials where publications are going to be much more evidence-based and much more, you know, we say argument, but it's not bickering kind of argument. It's a a different use of the word argument, sure. Different use of the word argument. Absolutely. It's a very good point there. And so arguing uh, from a position of this is the way we should be thinking about this situation. And here's the evidence to support that. I think those are the biggest differences there with that. It's kind of, it's sort of counterintuitive because, you know, we're asking you for your argument, which sounds like I ought to be able to just tell you exactly what I'm thinking and and argue my point, right? 
But in this kind of academic world or scholarly writing, it, that's not what we mean by your argument. It's about taking the different pieces of literature and the different studies or things and, and piecing them together in such a way that it conveys the point you're trying to make. And then that's your argument. So, yes, I, I see what you're saying. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's evidence-based writing rather than opinion-based writing. Yeah. And so when you're going to, I think that that's probably the biggest difference between that. And then, you know, the mechanics, I think of both of them in terms of, I'd like to try and have people keep their writing fairly simple. Mm-hmm. That using a lot of jargon and using, you know, going and, and finding more complex words uh, or obscure words mm-hmm. in place of simple language is can come across as being pretentious mm-hmm. and can be annoying to people that I just want to know where you're coming from and keeping that. And so it's just clarity of communication as well. Sure. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not about sounding smart as much right. as it is good communication. Right. As you're sharing that, I'm thinking about a paper that I'm currently writing with a, a co-author, with two co-authors, and um, I was rereading it this weekend, and I we put the word juggernaut in it. <laughs> and that's not a word that we commonly use, so I'm, I'm just curious to see if this word stays in there and makes it to publication one day or if at some point we're going to have to take juggernaut out. And I'm not sure why we put it in there other than maybe just to be kind of funny, but it is that same idea. Like you don't have to go and use your thesaurus and and look up these fancy words. It's about clearly communicating your ideas. And the flip side of that, I'll say, uh, the other thing I'm thinking about is that I read a lot of thesis, theses, dissertations, papers, Papers I'm reviewing for journals, you know, so submitted papers and stuff. And like the overuse of air quotes is almost as bad because people put things in air quotes. And when you do that, what you're saying is this is not the meaning of this word is not what I it actually is what I'm intended. So I'm going to put quotation marks around it so that you can understand that that's not what I mean. Okay, don't communicate what you don't mean. Like use the words that actually represent what you're trying to say so that we have that clarity of communication. Because if someone who is outside of your culture, who is not familiar with the phrase or the, you you know, they're not going to understand that. Same thing with colloquialisms and things. So communication is really key. I'm wondering if there are other tips or if there are even resources that you maybe direct students to use as they go through this process of writing. Yeah, let me, I, I want to loop back about oh, okay. the <laughs> quotes real quick and then I'll move forward with that. Okay. I think that, that really, you brought up a really good point there is that you're not writing for necessarily your circle or just your university. And so you're writing for an international audience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it's amazing how, you know, I got a request from somebody from Turkey this weekend wanting to use one of the instruments that I used in one of my re- research projects. You know, I, I get requests like that once or twice a month, maybe even once or twice a week. And so it just shows that you're writing for a really international audience. And when you mm-hmm. do things like that, it can be really misleading or, or mm-hmm. bring up some of what you were saying, some of these colloquialisms that make it uh, the communication more difficult. And so in terms of some tools, you know, part of that tools are going to really be dependent on 
the domain you're writing for. So you brought mm -hmm. that up already. You know, it depends on what your subject area is and, and what are the norms and so forth within that discipline. But one of the tools that I've asked all my students to get is Grammarly. Yeah, for sure. And it's amazing and pay for that professional version because then it will can be embedded within your word processor and so mm -hmm. forth with that. And so I have embedded within Microsoft Word. I, I won't submit a report for consideration publication without going through Grammarly first. Mm -hmm. For and the folks that don't know, tell us what Grammarly is or what it's doing for you. Certainly. So Grammarly is a, um, it's actually a, a software writing tool. And mm -hmm. what it does is it, it does grammar checking, but it also mm -hmm. does spell checking, but it will look for things like I've mentioned before, passive sentences or mm -hmm. passive phrases. It'll look for long over, uh, over complicated sentences. Uh -huh. It'll look for run on long sentences. And it will make recommended changes if mm -hmm. it's possible. But I mean, like a long sentence, it's like, oh, this, uh, this contains 63 words. You need to cut <laughs> it down to maybe, you know, 20. Right. <laughs> you know, or separate it, it into three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And break it up. And so, you know, those are really super helpful. And here's the other thing is that when you're working with an advisor, to do that before you share it with your advisor mm -hmm. is super helpful because it makes our job a lot easier as well is one thing. But the other thing is, is that I find it makes people a better writer as well because they start paying attention to these different uh, situations that Grammarly catches and they're right. taking care of it before Grammarly has to take care of it for uh -huh. them. Or, and, and then um, the, the quality of the writing goes up. And so, you know, it's a little bit pricey, but it's mm -hmm. way, way cheaper than a right. professional editor. Yeah. And if you purchase it at the beginning of your graduate program, then you'll benefit from it throughout. So I hope that folks are thinking about that and looking at that early on in their programs for sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because, you know, that, uh, that certainly is worth every penny that I pay for it every year. And then, you know, if you're writing an APA style, becoming real familiar with the uh, APA website, if you're old school, go ahead and purchase the book. Hey, there's uh, nothing wrong with owning the book. No. <laughs> I, own, I have two copies, one for my office and one for home. <laughs> I got one here on the shelf too, but here's the thing is that it's so much quicker to just search the website for what I'm looking for than to try and find it in the book. It's there, but it's just, a, you know, it becomes a matter of efficiency. But, you know, to that point, folks need to make sure they know what style guide they're using mm -hmm. and, and be looking at that. When I, for, I remember when I first learned that there was a book that told you how to do all this formatting. And I found out after I had written the first full draft of my dissertation, I was like, what? There's a book? I could have used this a year ago. So yeah, find out what your style guide is and then look these things up because it's all, you know, people who are reading it and telling you, oh, when you write this number, it should be in word form or this number should be in numerical form. They're not just making that up. It's a part of your style, style guide that communicates those expectations. Dr. Nadelson, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Any additional insights related to writing for, at graduate level? Yeah, I think that the other thing is being persistent. I mean, writing, it, it takes time and good writing takes even more time. And mm -hmm. so 
not to get discouraged, but to be persistent and, and keep at it and, and resilient mm-hmm. and just keep moving, moving ahead, dedicating some time toward writing. I write best in the mornings. And so mm-hmm. what I'll do is I'll block time in the mornings. I don't write so well in the afternoon, but I edit better in the afternoons mm-hmm. um, or evenings. And so knowing when you write best and, and then blocking time to do that and scheduling that, I think is really important for making progress, particularly yeah. for a dissertation reporter thesis and so forth with that. Because otherwise, what people will do is they'll sit down and do a brain dump and send it and it's just like some of this just doesn't even make sense and it's all over the place Mm -hmm. and and i'll just send it back and say look you've got to edit this before i can look at it here this is not ready for me to look at Mm -hmm. and so but and then also dedicate time to it i like dedicating time weekly Mm -hmm. as my schedule permits um i've been a little busy this year and so but moving forward, I'm going to have more flexibility with my time. And so I'll block at least a couple hours each week for writing. Mm-hmm. And I really encourage my students to do the same do thing. The same. Yeah. You mentioned, so I want to key on this before we finish up here. You mentioned persistence, being persistent, being resilient. And I think one thing I would want to point out is it can be very deflating when you get your work back and you see all of those markings. But I would encourage graduate students to of course, you know, you'll be kind of deflated because maybe you got, you thought it was better than maybe it was. I don't know. But when you see that level of feedback on your paper or on your thesis or dissertation or whatever, that means that your faculty member cares and they want to hold you to high expectations because they know you can achieve those things. And so I would just encourage our graduate students that when you're getting that critical feedback, like soak it up. And take advantage of it and learn from it. Because once you're out in the world, they're not going to give you that type of feedback. They're going to expect that you already know these things. And they may not be as helpful in terms of feedback. They may just say, you know what, never mind. So know that that just means somebody cares and they're trying to support you. And they're, they're wanting to see you grow as a writer and as a scholar in your discipline. And that, that's, a, that's an exciting thing when you get that paper back and there's feedback all over it so yay take advantage of that yeah and you know as a a pretty accomplished scholar when I get something back and somebody's done that I see that as a gift it's like thank you so much I really appreciate I mean I'm a little bit sometimes embarrassed because it's like oh I hate using your time because I know I'm you know uh, valuable you know other people's time is because I'm in the same place but at the same you know on the other hand, getting that feedback and getting that and having some, it's just, thank you. That was a real nice gift mm-hmm. for you to do that. And I see that as, as a gift because it's a, it is, it's time, experience, kindness in doing that rather than just saying, I, you know, this isn't, I am not worth my time to read. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. but you, you never want to hear that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your insights, Dr. Nadelson, you know, that are based on your experiences with working with students. So thank you for spending some time with me today and sharing your insights into writing at the graduate level. Well, Dr. B, it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate you inviting me in. No problem. And thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode of Grad Chats with Dr. B. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and listen to future episodes.